The International IVF Initiative is a worldwide non-profit education project for the assisted reproductive technologies community, sharing scientific and practical knowledge for embryologists, reproductive scientists and anyone working in the ART community. Each episode will share an insight into the world of IVF, along with profiles of legends within the world of ART, latest news and wisdom from our community. Welcome to the latest episode of the i3 podcast. You're going to hear a conversation about lab air quality with Giles in conversation with Dr. Catherine C. Warrillow, creator of Life Air Systems. Have a listen. I've known your name for a very long time. Uh, We've only just recently met. But I didn't realise that you were a lab director before. So how did you get sort of started into that? When I finished my postdoc at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, I, I interviewed with large biopharma companies, interviewed with academic institutions, and uh, a recent postdoc graduate, Dr. Kathy Goh, was working in IVF in a Philadelphia hospital. And one of our shared colleagues said, you should really shadow Kathy. You should really spend the day with her and see, you know, see if that's something that you're drawn to. And so I did. And that was it. That I fell in love from, from that moment on. And I said, this, th- this is where my heart is. I mean, it was, you know, it's, it was science. It was patience. It was uh, clinical research, you know, applied to patient care. It was teaching. Yeah. It was everything that I love. And yeah. so it was from that moment on. That's interesting because um, like Kathy Go is a like regular with I3. Okay, she comes on many oh. times. She's a big fan and we're a big fan of hers. So I didn't realise that at all. I didn't realise that yes. at all. And yes. it's interesting you say that you sort of like fell on, you know, almost by accident embryology because we're having a campaign at the moment because people don't know about IVF from various forms of like science they don't realize that they can do it, whether they think it's like a medical sort of occupation or they just even haven't heard of it. So it's interesting that you fell upon it yourself. Did you do some work with cell culture as well or co-culture? Yes. In the very beginning, um, when I first started in IVF, we did work with co-culture. To be specific, um, buffalo rat liver cells. Wow. BRL cells. Wow. Which was, um, you know, fast, just a fascinating process. But uh, yes, we did work with co-culture. And would you class yourself now as like a scientist or a businesswoman? Because you've gone mm. on to big, wonderful things, haven't you, really? In my heart, I'm a reproductive physiologist. So I'm a scientist at heart. And I've had to actually throughout my educational career, I was completely focused on science and math. Um, really, I don't think there was an econ course in there. And so that's that's one thing I share with those going through school now, just you never know where things are going, the path that you're going to take. So even though I was heavy in math and science and very content with that, I encourage anyone just color outside the lines and take that business course, take that accounting course, take that econ course, you know, just because you never know where your path may take you. Sure, sure. Now, we're here to talk a little bit about uh, lab construction and air quality, okay, something which you are synonymous with. In the olden days, of course, it was like anecdotal, you know, something like, you know, your success rate dropped because, you know, perhaps someone was, um, you know, covering the road next to the lab or they were painting next to the kind of thing. But when did you sort of first see the importance of that? I think, you know, there was really outstanding literature um, years ago with by Jacques Cohen, uh, Bill Boone, Antonia Gilligan, um, 
and, and others, I mean, really leading papers that first identified the relationship between air quality, outside activities, and um, the culture of the human embryo. And that was my personal baseline, my personal foundation. But then we experienced it real time, um, the impact those activities had on our cellular and clinical outcomes, although we were working inside a clean room. Which must have been, you must be one of the first because I'm a clean room fan or, or at least like clean room concepts. I think there's a, you know, there's this arena that is, is, a, you know, is a silo and I don't think we've embraced it enough. But, mm-hmm. but you were working in a clean room before, but you noticed that there was something going on with the air quality, yes. And you too have published um, as well though on air particles and also on seasonal VOCs as well, haven't you? Yes. I I mean, our, our experience, it it took us about 10 years to, to really connect the dots because we had undulations in our clinical outcomes as, you know, as, as many did. And it really took us 10 years to, to connect the dots because the one variable that we did not look at as being responsible for these undulations or or drops uh, was the air quality because we assumed we had checked that box being in a clean room. So it was really the live monitoring that we were doing. We were doing live monitoring of uh, total VOCs. And the only reason we were doing that was to be certified as an operational clean room, which we did quarterly. So we had all of this live monitoring data that we really put in place as a clean room, but it was one evening it was about 6.30 at night and I was leaving the hospital campus. We were live doing IVF. We would cycle, our, we would batch our patients. And I was leaving the hospital campus. And again, this is you know year 10 of this and still not figuring out the cause of these undulations or the exact cause. And I was leaving the hospital campus and I noticed that they were resurfacing a medevac pad because we had eight medevacs. It was a level one trauma hospital. And I could see the fumes coming up from the asphalt. That was really the aha moment. And I stopped and asked them, when did they start the process? When would they finish the process? Could I see an MSDS sheet? And to be honest, they really wanted me just to go home. And But the next day, they gave me their supervisor's name. And the next day, I called, got the MSDS sheet, saw the toluene and the levels. And despite the fact that this medevac pad was on the other side of the campus, from where our air intake was for our lab. I then went back and looked at our live monitoring data and we had parts per billion levels of toluene Mm -hmm. in our IVF laboratory. And so it was that moment that then made us go back and look at the past 10 years in that clean room. And we were able to correlate outside hospital activities, very typical activities, but ones an IVF lab could never control. Um, we were able to coordinate or, or we could see that our, our drops in cellular and clinical outcomes were coincident with very common hospital activities or activities within the space. Often you can never choose where you're going to put your IVF clinic, unfortunately. You can't, you know, no. it's luxury. And in a hospital, it could be, I mean, I think, uh, you know, quite a bad area is um, with the laundry. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a lot of chemicals there. And uh, still, I think our lab's airtight to not have that problem. And the maintenance and the painting and anything that goes on in these. There are so these, many. Yeah, 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 yeah. So many. It's just so we were able to correlate either outside or interior activities 
with specific VOCs or viable particulates, your bacteria, viruses, or fungi. It was coincident every single time with our undulations in clinical outcomes. Mm -hmm. That was the aha moment. And that was your paper sort of on the seasonal VOCs? That was different. That was different. Right. Yes. Uh Yeah. Seasonal VOCs was another layer to the undulations where we learned the impact of temperature, humidity, as well as biogenic VOCs. Biogenic VOCs are are produced primarily by uh, shrubs and trees. And as you know, in Pennsylvania, as you're going through the, the four seasons, we would see these undulations in our rates based upon what was occurring outside. So what did you do? What did you do about that? You saw there was this seasonal variation. People still have seasonal variation, don't they? Mm-hmm. And and, and they can and they can scratch their heads and say, Oh, you know what's happening. So so um how did it go from that to you building this um, you know, this very unique system that you've got now? It it was all data that went into the design. All I mean you know, I've I've always thought all aspects of data were valuable, but I in particular think negative data is value is valuable because it it taught us what we want, what specifically was impacting our cell culture success success rate, um, and it and it, that it was a variable that we needed to control. So the seasonal variability, all the some of the out, the outside hospital activities within hospital activities, those all went to the design criteria of these need to be neutralized. These need to be completely neutralized so that they're not impacting the cell culture space. And that leads on to the company which you have now. I mean, was it sort of like an overnight change? Did you see that you could offer this to other clinics? And is that what happened? You know, because I know it's a very unique system. How did that get off the ground, if you like? Because you were, you know, you were like a lab director who had an idea. Mm hmm. That's that's how it started. And once we learned um, the significance of you know, low-level airborne pathogens on our cell culture success. And, and again, it took us 10 to 15 years, but once we understood what box of air, if you will, the human embryo needed for consistent culture, I went to the CEO of our hospital and I said, I think we finally understand the missing piece. And I explained it to him. I'd been presenting the negative data for years at ASRM. And he said, that's great. He knew our frustrations with this over the last decade. And he literally gave me a blank check and said, spend whatever you need to spend. And because we want to, you know, stand out as excellence, offering excellence in patient care, spend what you need to spend buy an air filtration system that's going to deliver what you know is so important. I thought it'd be the easiest capital purchase I'd ever made. And there was nothing that I could purchase for our practice that would deliver, you know, below detection VOCs and below detection viable particulates and protect us from all of the activities that had been impacting our outcomes. That was really the genesis of life air when there was no solution. What's the secret sauce, if you like, with <laughs> uh, with Life Air? Okay, you know, without actually going into details or whatever, but um, you know, you must have adapted it yourself. So you took so you took the technologies which were around, okay, and and then you have this system now, which is now in hospitals and in um, in airports now, isn't it? As well, you know, as well as all the you know uh, high performing labs as well, isn't it? It is. We we actually, I did look at existing technologies because I thought, why reinvent the wheel to incorporate into the system? But we chose not to for a number of reasons. Um, some, we, we didn't want a technology that would produce byproducts. That was very important. I mean, I mean, you know, in IVF, you solve, 
nine out of 10 issues, but you may create another issue, which could be as bad, if not worse than the nine you remove. So it was very important to me that the te- however this technology would deliver you know, these airborne metrics, that it not produce byproducts. So that ruled out some technologies. I also didn't want to use catalyst because catalysts degrade over time. So if your technology depends upon a catalyst and that degrades over time, that means the effectiveness of your system is going to degrade over time. And again, as you know, in IVF, everything has to be proactive. You don't want to address an issue after you see the consequences under the microscope or after you see the consequences clinically. So again, so a lot of the design criteria for the LifeAir system uh, came from a very robust list of things that we had learned over the years. What we, you know, our goals in the technology and what we would and would not want to use. Are you familiar with a very popular paper, which we have, of course, which is the Cairo Consensus? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, um, okay, that was like in 2017, I think. Um, And it sort of drew on all these papers, didn't it? Um, It had it there. Um, And that looked at, like, minimum standards. But it did sort of um, talk about... Uh, like clean, clean room concepts, isn't it? And it did. Yeah. I mean, it was it was a very well very well done paper. Okay, and, and there was over like fifty consensus points, which um, I think I read it somewhere. It's one of like the most you know like downloaded you know papers in there. So you can see how important you know air quality is. It's not often in the hands of the embryologist. Sometimes you know you, you have to fight for everything or so. What do you think the main the main contaminants are? in a lab these days? Well, we've done a lot of air testing um, just as a part of, you know, always wanting to improve and develop the technology to negate that variable. So we've done a lot of air testing, in particular before and after the installation of our technology. And so we've really gained a sense of the most common VOCs in the IVF lab, not only their, you know, their speciation, but their concentration. By virtue of identifying that, and there's a fairly common theme that we see, uh, and it makes sense, uh, you know, your alcohols, your acetones, some formaldehydes, your styrenes and toluenes. There are also some very common, there's a common sense of VOCs from outdoor activities, again, which are, are very difficult to control. And once we learned that, we've really launched uh, some very serious research into Now that we know this list of common VOCs in IVF laboratories, how are they impacting the embryo? We know what happens when you remove them, but how are they actually impacting the human embryo? And so we've we've partnered with um, chemical engineers at Lehigh University, and we've done an extensive amount of work, and, and the work continues to this day, on how does particular VOCs, say IPA, go from a gaseous phase into into a liquid phase, into your cell culture media, and then into the cellular phase or the cell proper. And so we, we've modeled that using a number of very well-established laws in physics that actually shows you how quickly these VOCs can enter either the oil overlay or the cell culture media, and then how quickly they can enter the cell proper. And then once cellular, there are a number of outstanding publications on the impact of VOCs at the cytotoxic level. Have, have you got any, any other publications which, which actually show the mode of, of, of how they work, did you say? Yes, actually, uh, a manuscript was just recently accepted for publication in RBM Online, which oh, we're, very, we're very excited. 
Excellent, excellent. Um, and um, you'll be going to some of the conferences now that we're sort of opening up a little bit. I look I forward to it. Yeah, yeah I look yeah. forward to it. Yeah. So much has changed, perhaps, since like the Cairo consensus. What do you think the you know like the biggest threats are to a lab nowadays? I mean, I can think of one. I'm just thinking uh, of the labs which haven't got any like robust system. I I would say the greatest threats. I mean, we're very focused on the cell culture environment. Um, you know, and, and the role that plays in cytotoxicity. I would say one of the, the greatest risks are, are the things that, that either the embryologists contribute to the lab environment itself or outdoor activities. The fabric of the lab is very important. There really isn't a detail that doesn't matter. Uh, the floors, the walls, the gasketing, even maintenance of equipment. I mean, exchanging gasketing in an incubator. I know we try to take care of the, most of our equipment ourselves because typically Murphy's Law, things happen on a Saturday afternoon and you need to know sure. how to fix it. I think it's important uh, for embryologists to understand all the most common sources uh, of these cytotoxic uh, pathogens that are very common and in their space or happening outside. We would even try to order our equipment in advance just to off-gas it before bringing it into the sure. lab. Yeah, yeah. I mean, no. I mean, I mean, off-gassing is a you know is a big you know, is a big topic, and when whenever we speak um, you know about lab construction on I three, it's 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 very very popular, and again about the furniture that you know that you bring inside, which is going to be you know like emitting VOCs you know for a long time if they're not the right furniture, basically. Oh, absolutely. Is. But I was thinking of things like you know like forest fires, which uh, you know seem to be on the increase as well. You know, I mean, completely out of your hand, I'd imagine. Mm-hmm. No, that's even, you know, where we've installed uh, the life care system. So many of those practices have had environmental events that were completely out of their control. Some of our installations have had tire fires nearby, restaurant fires, uh, forest fires, as you said. I mean, just activities that uh, environmental events completely out of their control. Fortunately, they were protected, but this as well as common construction and just progressive activities um, are always out of our control, unfortunately. Sure, sure. So you said that you'll be around the major conferences, okay? And you've got and you've got a publication coming out. Yes, that's right. So that's where we'll find you. Yes. Yeah. Any sort of improvements on the Cairo consensus? Can you think of? I think. Well, I think. I mean, it's it's a phenomenal manuscript and publication. I think. I think we've learned a great deal since then. I think we've learned far more about the the parts per billion levels. Um, of VOCs and what you really need to drive the environment to uh, for consistent cell culture so that that's not a negative variable. I think we've learned a lot about which VOCs are most common in IVF laboratories, where they come from, how to remediate them. I think we've learned about a lot about the materials that should and should not be used in an IVF laboratory. So I think the Cairo consensus provided probably one of the greatest foundations focusing on the environment in a laboratory. And fortunately, you know, through uh, a lot of great research from our colleagues, we've we've learned far more to really improve upon that. But perhaps we should um, like revisit it. Absolutely, absolutely. Excellent. Excellent. You know, if there is disappointing results and and people looking to sort of improve their air quality, what sort of first steps should they take first of all? But then, of course, you know, because you've got this company which you just mentioned, how easy is it to change a system? like that, like install, you know, your new system? Installing our system, we have a very, very strong engineering team. And so the first thing we do is look at what's called the as-built drawings 
of the laboratory. And we encourage, we only have a few installations that are the lab only. We really encourage including the clinical procedure rooms as well. In other words, kind of start to finish process, however it's laid out in that, in that practice. Uh, but the first thing our engineers do is look at the as-built drawings. And for us, it's all about cubic volume of air. So even the ceiling heights matter. I mean, if this is going to move forward with our technology, we want to protect every molecule in that space so that nothing is a threat to the cell culture environment. And it's, a, it's an assessment of the space, their existing um, HVAC system, their existing air handler, um, location, space, all the metrics that they already have. Uh, and then we will make a recommendation. It is this size system and this is where it could go. Really, that, that it's a very straightforward process. Probably 65% of our installations are what we call retrofit are into existing buildings. Right. Okay. So it's it's not going to be incredibly, incredibly expensive to think about having a new, a completely new system then, because, you know, when you think of a, you know, a, you know, a technology, which is unique and doing this with, you know, old established labs, which have their old mm-hmm. HVAC system, they're probably thinking, oh, you know, how expensive is that going to be? Are there sort of economical solutions? Yes. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and since we launched, uh, you know, we launched with what we call our five stage flagship system. Uh, but we've now created many more systems from that to address uh, different, you know, different age labs, different structure labs. Um, do they have a greater concern with VOCs and they would viables? And so we've been able to help a lot of colleagues um, offering more economic solutions, if you will, and smaller systems. There was this clean room industry that, you know, that existed. And I don't think they ever knew that, you know, there was us in IVF land that perhaps needed the help. Um, and you were saying before that there were some aspects which are good and, and bad about clean rooms? For IVF, I mean, I think, uh, you know, a clean room, if, if, if your goal is to completely remediate your non-viable particulates, uh, and your viable particulates, then clean rooms satisfy that. But there, there are aspects of a clean room that do not satisfy the cell culture environment of an IVF laboratory. And that's what we learned over that 10-year period. And so, I can imagine that, um, yeah, like, you know, one thing that's been is um, like the air changes. I mean, you know, you cannot have just this cooling effect if, right. you know, if you're going to have that, yeah. Well, not only the cooling effect, I mean, to be honest with you, when we built our clean room, we set it up to be 30 air changes per hour. That turned out to be too much. Right, I mean, right. not only the cooling effect, but there's a vibration because you have all your cri- most critical points of air over your ICSI, over your PGD, over, you know, over the areas where you're going to have uh, the gametes and the embryos exposed for the longest amount of time. Sure. So we had to back that down. Um, you know, again, I think there are parts of the clean room that would be applicable to IVF, but others that are not. And of course, that brings to mind what was the problems when they first brought in like the European Tissue and Cell Culture uh, Directive. You know, they had it so strict, if you like, that it was um, that really, you know, the labs were having difficulty to, you know, change, weren't they? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I really think you have to look at each application separately. I mean, here in the United States, cell and gene therapy is is really uh, exploding uh, across the country and actually very near us in Philadelphia. Uh, they call it Silicon Valley. Um, oh, right. But, you know, the cell and gene therapy, they're using a lot of the clean room 
designs that worked in the antibody work in the in in that world, but it's it's not completely satisfying this you know cell therapy and those SOPs right now. And we're hearing that from colleagues who are involved in that manufacturing process. Sure, and I suppose really you're thinking about it. I mean, you know, the IVF lab is connected to the theatre anyway, isn't it? You know, it's not it's not a closed environment, is it? You know, there are no, times not when at you, all. you have that, so, you know. Not at all. So, and that's why I mentioned earlier, it's important to protect uh, from start to finish. So, from the theatre to the lab, back to yeah. the theatre. Yeah, we mentioned a little bit, you know, about you know, VOCs and other toxic substances. But of course, you know, I suppose you could have like anesthetic gases, I suppose, for, from the theatre. Would that be a problem as well? Yes, absolutely. And the way the way the staff might prepare themselves to enter the space, you know, what, what they're wearing, what the patients I mean, it all of it matters. And if you if you incorporate, you know, standard SOPs, it's not it's not difficult to maintain. They're very subtle changes that need to be made to lessen the contribution of VOCs to the space. And it was, as we mentioned before, like anecdotal. And, and we then found out that perhaps the medical grade gases that we thought were medical grade were not as good. And in fact, they had worse air quality inside incubators than outside. Mm-hmm. But what measures do you take to actually measure these, you know, the particles or the VOCs in the lab, you know, and the labs which install your, your system, how do they keep on top of that? Is it continuously monitoring and there's uh, monitoring devices there? How do they do that? Well, there are several ways. They're, they can put canisters in the space and pull air into that canister, and then that's shipped to a third-party lab, and they can identify exactly which VOCs are in the space at the time and their concentration. That's not live monitoring, though. That's, that's very exact monitoring at that point in time. But there's also some very good ways to perform live monitoring. And, you know, um, there are two different uh, PID sensors that we've used, and you can connect those to a laptop and just have those running uh, in your laboratory. It's also an educational tool. So in teaching embryologists, you can have them, you know, clean the the, the laminar flow hood, clean that, and they'll watch, they'll watch the spikes of VOCs. Right. Um, they, they, so it can be a very educational tool. And if the total VOC levels are high or, you know, at a level of concern, then they can put canisters in, pull air into the canisters, and then they'll know which VOCs. So right. we, we work with labs, you know, to help them understand where they are and how they could be better. Great. Okay. Brilliant. Brilliant. Uh, what next then do you think for yourself and the company, would you say? There are a lot of exciting things going on. We, um, specific to IVF, it's really our colleagues uh, who already have the induct system. They are, they really generate our product development. So for example, they've said, you know, can you take whatever makes it work and shrink it and, you know, provide something that can comprehensively filter the VOCs for our medical gases? serving our incubators or our tabletops. That came from the clinical providers who already have our system. And they've and, and we've since launched that. Um, I mean, it takes years to do so and a lot of robust testing, but we, we're excited to have launched that. And there are a number of other new products underway right now that we'll be excited to launch in 23. Um, also ideas coming from the clinical providers saying, Take whatever makes it work above the ceiling, and can you do this? And can you do this? And so it's um, all of our installations really become a lifelong clinical partners, 
and academic partners. And we published together and analyzed data together. And as I said, they provided so many um, thoughts for, you know, next steps, life air R&D. So we're very excited about that. And then we've also finished outside of IVF, uh, two very large IRB approved clinical studies, one in healthcare and one in senior living. And again, because the system was selfishly designed to protect the human embryo, the design bar was set extraordinarily high. One of those design bars was the anthrax spore. So we chose as our kill target, if you will, the anthrax spore, because that's the most difficult biological to kill. And if you can kill that or remediate that, then you provide a nine log reduction of the other infectious bacteria, viruses, and fungi with which we are concerned. Six log, obviously, sterility. So because of the proven anthrax kill of our technology, we started conversations with hospitals and senior living facilities in the United States because despite how, how focused and how hard they're trying in infection, in infection prevention, infection control, um, their HAI rates or healthcare acquired infections are not zero. And it's, it's a huge capital expense to hospitals and senior living facilities. So knowing that our technology kills the anthrax spore and basically all other infectious airborne pathogens, we conducted these two studies where the life air system protected an entire floor and it, as compared to your standard medical grade HEPA protection, what they all currently use now. And the results have, have been dramatic. There was a 39% reduction in infections on the life air protected floor versus HEPA and a 47% decrease in staff callouts. So not only were the patients and residents, was their wellness and, and infection rate dramatically improved, um, but the staff, the staff were as well. And I presume, like in COVID times, you were immensely busy, I would imagine. We received a lot of calls. Some calls we just wanted to serve as, as a resource, just to try to answer questions. I mean, different methods of air filtration, it, it somewhat became the wild, wild west. And, you know, we had so many calls about explain this to us. And is this real? And why do they say this? So yeah, we would yeah. try to serve as a resource, which we were happy to do so. Um, but we also received a number of calls from... I mean, we're very IVF and healthcare centric. It's our core. Yes. But because of the pandemic, uh, the fear, the increased awareness of airborne transmission, we had a lot of calls from non-healthcare spaces, commercial spaces, airports, police stations, dental practices. And so we've just tried to pivot. Our technology already existed. And because of the anthrax kill, it provides actually a 145 log kill of COVID and all of its variants. So we already had the technology. So we just tried to pivot, create new solutions using the proven technology and help. I mean, someone going into like a lab, okay, with your system, they wouldn't perhaps notice anything different than any other IVF lab, which is like, you know, the clothing they wear, it wouldn't be, you know, like bunny suits, but it would just be, would you say that, you know, the quality of the air was, you know, is so much better than elsewhere? Yes. I mean, the only thing when we install our technology, the, the lab stays the same. What we learned through the clean room is that the clean room wasn't delivering what the mammalian cell needed. 
it was doing a great job on your viable and non-viable particulates, but not on VOCs. And none of us realized how significant that was and how low you had to drive VOCs for that. So our system is actually not installed in clean room IVF labs at all. It's installed in all types of IVF laboratories, you know, whether they're wearing your, your typical scrubs or two layers and everyone's doing IVF differently as they should. The only thing they have in common is their culture environment is now completely controlled, but they're still doing all of their other protocols and SOPs. Where would people find these labs if they wanted to you know, talk to colleagues or visit them? Yeah, um, are they sort of all, all over North America and Europe, would you say? We started and focused in the United States. Um, so the greatest number of installations that are in the United States, but we do now have three in Canada, four in Europe, uh, four in China. And so, you know, we're just starting to extend that footprint. But we'd be happy to share. I mean, our installed base has been wonderful and that they'll, you know, they'll answer questions and, and talk with colleagues about their experience. We're happy to provide that. But of course, you do have a secret weapon, don't you? Absolutely. Yes, we do. I would say there too. I think we're talking about the same people. Do you want to name them? Lars Johansson and Huey Wynn. Outstanding. Outstanding individuals, both with a, a wealth of knowledge. Uh, yeah, I must admit, one's a very old friend of mine, and one's a new friend of mine with a wealth of knowledge, and they're zipping around the world, having too much fun, I think, but also looking at the labs and giving advice as well. Yes, yes. I mean, all towards just you know, providing consistency and excellence. No, they're outstanding. Well, we'll have to get them on an I3 session pretty soon. Absolutely. That, that, that'd be fantastic. That would be wonderful. Thank you very much for your time. It, it's a topic which never grows old because, you know, you really want the best for your, your lab environment. So again, thank you very much for your time and we'll speak soon. No, thank you so much. And we'll be talking more about lab construction and air quality very soon in the I3 session, Return to Cairo. Be sure to visit ivfmeeting.com where you can watch our back catalogue of webinars. Plus you can sign up for future ones, download our electronic membership card and find all our social media so we can stay in touch.